0: Uh, welcome everyone to the variant perception big pic- picture call uh, for February 2024. So, as a quick reminder, um, you know we laid this out in our what we got right and wrong uh, video recently as well. So, after reviewing our processes for last year and after taking into account client feedback, uh, we've decided that this year we're going to produce a lot more targeted uh, monthly market discussion calls for clients. Um, essentially. How this breaks down is we intend to start each month with essentially this, a big picture core, the most kind of top of mind um, topics, uh, followed by a specific asset allocation core centered around our um, updated Desert Island decks. Um, And then typically the third week, I would anticipate much more of a global macro trading focus core. So specifically um, looking at the alignment of tactical with, our cyclical models. Obviously we're already triggering models daily on the portal, but that's very much the the short term timing. But the goal of that call call will be to kind of review where things are most aligned and some of the ongoing trades. And then typically the final week I would anticipate will be slightly more ad hoc, but it will probably be um, focused on specific bottom up sectors or even single names, heavily uh, linked to our capital cycle crowding and the various equity factor models we build. So, you know, in summary, the, the case should really be big picture core, you know, what is the market focused on what are the big topics specifically then VPS allocation, then specifically global macro trading tactical models, and then finally bottom up, uh, stock pick, stock picks essentially, or industry picks. And yeah, with that, um, you know, this, uh, with that, I guess, Scott, yeah, let, let's get into it. What, what, you know, big picture wise, what is uh top of mind?
1: Yeah. So. I think uh, you have to start with the U.S. fiscal situation. Um, you know, we look back to last year, the, the fiscal input, the, the fiscal deficit that we ran around seven percent of GDP um, has really been an ex, in our, in my opinion, a, a pretty outsized driver in helping support the U.S. growth narrative, especially when the rest of we've seen the rest of the world go through quite a already go through a recession and actually now starting to uh, turn back up and uh, the economic outlook globally starting to improve, but the U.S. has yet to really drop off. Um, and I think trying to digest, can fiscal A, will it continue? What's the outlook this year? B, uh, will that potentially lead to, you know, is there any upside inflation risk? What's the outlook for growth? We had, you know, a bunch of recent really hot PMI data. But then also, um, how does that tie into activities within the labor market? You know, we highlighted pretty consistently, over the past year dynamics of labor hoarding and is U.S. fiscal um, supporting, you know, hiring intentions by companies that maybe um, maybe aren't quite true. And I think we've broken that down a little bit when are looking at job openings from extremely small companies versus bigger companies, hiring data, um, the layoff outlook is a little, is diverging. So I guess I'd start there. Um, curious what you think about, can fiscal continue uh does that mean is that is that the only important driver to continue this uh at outsized u s growth narrative but uh also are we seeing any divergences um under the hood like we've seen uh in the labor market uh within fiscal i know um maybe from like a tax receipt standpoint or something
0: yeah so i I think I would frame it as how we- how are we gonna get the soft landing and this is where we talked about the 1967 analogy a lot. And essentially there's three problems. One is continue fiscal. Two is we get the aggressive fed cuts and they deliver and they preemptively cut. And then the third is, you know, the labor market dynamics, right? Whether you want to call it hoarding, or if you want to say labor mismatch, um, essentially a micro, you know, businesses, right? That That continues so it prevents the labor market falling over. I think if you get all three, that provides kind of the best ingredients um, for us to achieve the soft landing, right? Like clearly there's just so many weird under the hood divergences in the data over the kind of past, uh, you know, what 12 months really, right? In- including the persistent situation of our US lead indicator recovering strongly, the cyclical one, yet the, res- the recession model being on, right? Issues like the, the diffusion of state coincident indices being recessionary Diffusion of, like, diffusion of claims being recessionary, but outright GDP being super strong, you know, tax receipts being down um, whilst the retail sales are super strong. And so there's just lots of you know weird things, right? Like, you know, credit card delinquency is rising a lot. Yet, again, the consumer headline seems fine. And I think having dug into the various parts of it, it does really come back to the most obvious answer, fiscal. Right? If you just run you know, from the kind of even when we laid out our Godot's recession thesis, the whole point is if you decompose it using the collective levy decomposition, ultimately, how much are household saving and how much are government saving will drive the, the, the outcome in terms of private sector profits. And so it has been pretty unprecedented that we've had a simultaneous drawdown in both household savings and in government this saving right i.e deficit so when the two again historically these are obviously normally like an automatic stabilizers counter cyclical right normally it's in the recession or things go bad households are increasing their saving and the government offsets by increasing the deficit um in the post-covid environment it's been extremely rare for the two to uh, be aligned and so clearly that's been um a pretty overwhelming um factor so i think those are the three pieces now i think in terms of where we are today um i think the labor hoarding remains you know pretty prominent right we can see it in the data and in in particular in the macro snapshot where we show that for businesses with less than 10 employees they've really struggled to increase hiring after covid they're the ones who are responsible for the massive jump in job openings and there's like a big big gap in that data for businesses with more than 10 employees Job openings hires, they' actually fallen a lot and it's actually you know below trend right and then if you break it out, it gives you a clearer picture and typically you would expect the the greater than ten employees to be more reflective you know listed companies um right and the kind of the, the earnings that probably matter for investors a bit more right so so I think that that's kind of um you know you can see that divergence, but then that might also explain that. You know because small businesses still recruiting quite heavily you know you you probably have a situation where you know as people lose their jobs they can get find other work right there's all these things about people taking multiple jobs right and in these various things and i think the explanation could just be that it's the micro businesses that are really driving the, the 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 good labor market data and, and keeping and helping things hold up and that can reconcile with now you're seeing more like you know layoff announcements right War notices and these things are typically more linked to probably bigger businesses right so i think that that's potentially there but as of right now clearly that says you know the labor mismatch continues for now right that's still kind of over in aggregate the data so fine that part's good the second piece on the fed cuts so again i think coming into the year especially end the last year you know betting on less fed cuts made a ton of sense to me when you know we're, we're pricing six seven uh, cuts in the market, but now after that blowout, non-farm payrolls has come off a lot, and you know there's probably not not that much juice left in the front end, right? Like realistically, the most the the, the outcome is the Fed cuts two three times this year if we get a soft landing, and or something breaks, they going to cut like you know a, a heck of a lot more, right? So you got to price both using one price. So it feels like now now that those software futures have moved a lot, there's probably not that much juice left, um, and so. You know the fair we need to kind of over deliver versus what's priced in now, I think to get it so again, it's possible um but we're still out on the side of you know it feels a little bit conspiracy driven right? i think if 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 the central banks are truly acting independently, then I think they'll want to err on the side of cutting slowly, managing the process right, and then letting you know being data dependent effectively and obviously the the arguments for them cutting a lot more have been a lot of, a lot of it's been political, you know, wet you know, either because they favor a Biden administration or they don't want to do stuff closer to the election um, or that they need to help the government reduce interest expenses, right? Like, you know, that, which again, could be possible. So we have to price some probability of that. So, you know, I think that piece is still there. Right. Um, so then the final piece becomes fiscal. So again, the, the, the simple argument would be, okay, it's an election year, you know, you know, we we clearly crossed the Rubicon after COVID. No matter who it is, everyone's going to spend money. Now, yep. this is where I think it could be quite interesting. Um, when you dig into the data, I think as we previously noted in the you know in in reports, it's pretty um unprecedented to see tax receipts, nominal tax receipts, um, falling for both production taxes as well as um personal um, taxes. And this is not, and this is, is not strictly speaking a capital gains issue. Capital gains is not big enough share Mm -hmm. of the overall personal income tax bill to account for the fall. It's typically around 10%, varying from five to, you know, 15%. And so this is where, um, that gap might be a result of our government policy and COVID linked policies, that suggests the government maybe ran too big a deficit versus even what they intended last year. And so specifically here, um, what I did was I had a look recently at a uh, new business formations data in the US, which skyrocketed after COVID. And you can actually break out the data for for the kind of the new businesses that, that are likely to create jobs and they the ones that are not explicitly creating jobs, right, or it's not clear. And so even the non-job creating ones have surged. So there is probably some some truth to this idea of lots of people, you know, open up new businesses to take advantage of all the COVID stimulus. Right. And so that obviously, you know, helps them avoid taxes or reduce their taxes. And then that could explain why personal income taxes are a lot lower. Um, on the production side, my suspicion is a lot of it is still linked to the inflation reduction act green tax credits. That's distorting the aggregate, but obviously again, it's hard to prove in real time, but that that's clearly been, been like a factor as well. So, um, so if, if you look forward from here, what's interesting is if the tailwind from all those new business formations, and expiration of COVID kind of benefits are done and also capital gains, obviously for 2024 is obviously going to be a higher right for them versus when, when, when people filed in 23, um, that there's some sense that maybe tax receipts need to recover a bit. In which case that actually will naturally re- reduce kind of the default deficit, right? Depending on what the governments do so that they'll have to be proactive in in maintaining a wider deficit. So it is possible that the impulse actually does shrink. Obviously, it's not in the data yet. We we track it monthly. Right now, we're still kind of, the impulse is basically neutral. We're still going at basically the six and a half percent of GDP deficit number run rate. But some of these factors suggest maybe it would actually come in in an unexpected way. Um, and then, if the fiscal impulse reduces, then that's kind of been the the, the main piece, right? Like, you know, you see it, you see the the you know the impact it's had on you know where where jobs being created, right? Government jobs, you know, health and services, um, job, education jobs, and, and so forth. So, um, I think I think that's the the probably the the most interesting piece, right? So, ultimately, I think we do need to thread the needle or, or three, and that fiscal carries on, the Fed does put the cuts in. Um, and then the labor kind of structure mismatch continues. As of right now, I think, you know, they still look, you know, the, the the ongoing data suggests that's still in place, right? You know, our Fed our Fed easing model is is in the easing regime. Just a question: how many yeah. cuts the impulse is neutral on, on fiscal? Um. So yeah, I think that's the thing we want to observe. Now, I think the tangible takeaway is if we get that situation, inflation risk is, is on the price, right? I think where we're probably most variant. In, in, in the view is I, you know, this, I think longer term inflation risk on the price um, right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's the, you made, that's the point I was going to bring up. You made the the comment of, you know, did we run too big a fiscal deficit uh, last year? Um, and yeah, we, there are signs like you mentioned that the impulse could start to neutralize a bit more, but we're still, you know, the, still large amounts of fiscal at scale. And that often brings the, the, the worry of, you know, do we enter a default cycle? Do interest expense drive to go too high? Well, you know, historically, you know, when you get to certain levels of debt uh, GDP ratios, et cetera, you know, the Bernholz methodology, those types of things happen. But the risk of that, I think, is uh, that's an extremely further tail risk versus what is more being missed, I think, currently by the market um, is the pricing of inflation upside um, or potentially ups- upside surprises to to inflation um and i think then that that ties into another topic that i wanted to try to think through a little bit um obviously we saw last year you know huge huge rallies and semis ai type it type names uh, how, and you know the idea is does that drive um further increasing productivity across across the us and is that is that potentially a further offset to that word that a technological force that we've never seen before can offset any level of fiscal deficit, especially as the U S remains the reserve, uh, reserve currency of the world demand for dollars helps put pressure, uh, potentially reduce a little bit of pressure on inflation. So what I wanted to ask you is, uh, or get your take on is, do you think from a productivity standpoint in the U S that whether it's demographics or tech, um, what's the, out- what's your outlook on that? And could that offset any, uh, maybe that's why the market is not pricing higher inflation even amidst, you know, record levels of, of deficit, deficit spending.
0: Yeah, I, I th- this is obviously critical for our kind of longer-term mass allocation, right? I mean, we're basically like long gold, long gold miners, right? Capital scarcity crowding, you know, long tips. And arguably, if you get too big a tail risk, even the long MBS, you know, will be affected, right? If we get too big a move. So like for those things, we um, it clearly matters quite a lot, right? Including some of our kind of, more defensive so like staples, right? Getting duration exposure for equities, sure. like all these things are clearly going to be impacted. Um, now, what I would say is that it, it feels like the AI thing has a lot of echoes of kind of the fiber optic build out in the early 2000s, or at least that's like the 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 the, the blink my brain throws out where it's clearly going to be a game changer, but so much money is being thrown at it that this is again, an example of the capital cycling action, right? Too much money chasing, too profit, too, attractive right now will produce a lot of future competition, right? With all the big guys throwing money at it, I suspect that the value add, the true productivity gains and who monetizes might even accrue to the people that can, and the companies that take advantage rather than the companies that actually came up with the the technology, right? It feels like, you know, all the capex and things have been built out, but it's going to be so competitive um, that if you're like a more less, well, what's the right word? More traditional business, you can start leveraging. You know, we see that in what we do, right? In terms of how we code using ChatGPT or LLMs or whatever it is. Um, uh that that, you know, uh, more traditional businesses can start leveraging these things and, and the benefits are cruel to them. And, you know, it's uh and and I think that'll be more interesting from the capital cycle point of view, in terms of you know, understanding where are the beneficiaries, right? But in general, it's gonna be your kind of legacy, repetitive, white collar, these things, right. Those guys are probably accrued to it because I, you know, it's, it's, they probably won't be charged that much to, to do that. Right. So I think that's actually what the first blink when I look at it, that's very interesting. Um, but I think my concern longer term in terms of our inflation allocation is, um, technology is always a deflation force. Right. But I think there's probably times when it can be magnified and times when it's, um, less able to be fully realized and so i think in in the kind of geopolit- geopolitically safe world where the whole world a unified market then i think you can diffuse that out everywhere obviously today alongside the ai revolution is we we have clearly fiscal monetary policy coordination right we're going to we live in a much more fiscal world much more politically driven allocation of credit you know we're going to election season everywhere and right? there's a lot of you know talk around like bringing investments or not right these things and the government deciding where to allocate money. So so that's something that typically is a bit more inflationary, just in terms of the coordination. Um, and then obviously with the new Cold War, um, you know, multipolar world, all these kind of things, again, you're gonna have a more of a focus on resilience, right? Supply chain resilience or just duplicating things that historically we didn't need, right? Like it's gonna be, I think all countries are gonna be pretty motivated to put in place contingency plans, right? That just means you know, building out more things that you used to import, essentially, right? You, you didn't think that much about. So, um, and, and obviously this is like hints of like the, the you know, in, the, 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 in biology, right? They talk about like, you know, it's essentially efficiency versus kind of security trade-offs, right? And like, if you maximize efficiency, then it's obviously going to be, you know, as disinflationary as possible. But if we maximize securities, by definition, that means redundancy. You have to carry extra capacity extra capacity right but like before you get there you have to build it so that that building part is going to be inflationary and then even if you build extra capacity if it's not if it's non-productive then you'll have to see how it was financed right in 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 the end how how it shakes out in terms of did you destroy wealth and it's this deflationary you just build out all this capacity but you use it because the world's less efficient in which case it's it might be more inflationary. so um yeah. And obviously we have the demographic angle, right? We've shown that chart, a lot demographic chart versus yields and inflation. Where actually, we think ultimately it's, it's actually bias higher. And again, it's applying the logic of capital cycles to people flows. So one of the, the, I think one of the most first principles, core ideas that we center our analysis on is the idea of finding what is the true level, right? And I think this, this matter for the hierarchy of money, work we did also in demographics. The the idea is to figure out what the right ratio is to look at, right? And so to us, the capital cycle applied to demographics is what is the flow of savers versus the flow of consumers, and so we can do that by doing a GDP weighted global count of basically middle aged who are savers and the young and old who are consumers, right? And so on that ratio, um, once you GDP weight, then, um. You know we're moving into a world with a lot more consumers a lot less savers that naturally means that the 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 clearing rate to match up savings to consumers has to go up right and that means risk-free has to go up and you know there's more because naturally that'll, that'll show up in inflation that'll show up on yields and all these things right so i think structurally um there's probably more factors suggest to prepare for a higher yield decorative and high inflation kind of environment but there'll be pockets where that technology de- deflation will kick in. But I think globally, it, it, it depends on where you want to anchor on, right? Like at, at this point, it seems fiscal, it's going to be very hard to put the, put the fiscal monetary policy coordination back genie back in back in the land. And similarly to the China, US, like these tensions, whilst we might get, you know, cycles in the secular trend, it's, it's very hard to see how it goes. So I think those, and, and that naturally just means, the need for resilience and resilience just means building more things we already have right um so i so yeah i mean that that's probably the 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 framing around it but you know as of right now when we're not pricing that much in when 10 year when tips and these things you're getting a very good real yield when these break even is only like pricing two then i feel quite comfortable being like yeah sure there might be but there's all these other factors around inflation right that's probably the framing. just like for gold it's already capital scarce everybody you know it's actually pretty uncrowded then I don't mind owning gold miners. Right. But if say we have a situation where those valuations have changed, the crowding metrics and all those positions have changed, and then we go through this analysis and might be like, oh, there's clearly downside risk here from you know technology diffusion, right? Um Yeah, so yeah. that that's probably yeah, I'm I'm talking quite a lot, but like I guess that's just a stream of consciousness on it, on yeah. Yeah, no, um,
1: you know, when you mention uh infrastructure investment uh, demographics, you know, immediately makes, it makes me think we have to talk, we have to bring up the, uh, China and to your point of um, capital, you know, it's interesting The uh, you know, to your point of capital scarcity, you look at uh, countries across the board, um, you know, t- still Latin America seems to be one of the most capital scarce uh, industries or regions of the world. And that's a, you know, a large part of that is due to, I you know, uh, Obviously, underinvestment because you know China has been a big supporter of manufactured goods, whatever you know, for the past two decades. And that now, with you know, Dafa mentioned geopolitical risks, you know, uh, global reshoring, nearshoring concepts, uh, Capital Scares, LATAM, you know, the outlook's starting to look pretty good. Uh, you know, I'm down here in in Mexico, and you're starting to see all these manufacturing plants being built out, you know, around uh, Monterrey, and um, the outlook is very positive. And that could be, you know, potentially that's an inflationary force as to the point you made. We need to invest to build up these new uh, supply chains that maybe previously didn't exist. And that takes time to build out. But I also think or it makes me think, too, you know, China is also now has become capital scarce. Um, but we've mentioned a lot of uh, you know, structural idiosyncratic political risks within China, um, I guess. How do you view, or what what are you thinking about in terms, how does China play into the global demographic inflation story that we talked about previously? You know, China, um, do we think there's going to be there'll be a net exporter importer of inflation? Obviously, my bet, my thought would be, um, they're going, you know, have to continue this uh, large infrastructure investment, commodity investment outside of China, like we highlighted with Malaysia or Indonesia in our past G3 uh, EMDMLIW. How does that, what's your view on how that plays into um, the global productivity, inflation narrative? Um, and then, you know, I'm also thinking of specifically uh, China is flagged as capital scarce, but I think still would probably try, we'll try to want to view it as a trading market. Uh, maybe we could talk about that at the end, but big picture, how does um, China tie into uh, geopolitical risk, inflation risk and uh, Global productivity um, outlook uh, going
0: forward. So obviously, given all the moving parts here, I think again we need to find a few things to anchor on. I do think for China, energy security is a top top national priority, right? So to that to that extent, I think China has a pretty price insensitive bid to try and like build out all the infrastructure things they want to do, right? In terms of obviously, you know, in terms of the 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 connections through like pakistan and like afghanistan right there's a reason china's very focused on those things obviously for russia getting, getting the pipeline um getting new pipelines built and not having that critical dependence on kind of straight straight of malacca and then like these kind of you know and, and getting oil shipments through right And again that gas shipments through that way so um i do think you know there's a few reasons and obviously that's also why china's you know focused along renewables and these things so I think in terms of energy security means china will be a pretty price sensitive bid for a bunch of you know the commodities and the link things right so that's like quite a structural thing there almost regardless of the economy in in a way right obviously not fully but i suspect you have a a step up in that in that demand function so i think that part is there so to that extent i think that that's a that's like a that is going to be inflationary for those areas that are targeted um but at the same time, I think as a regime and the history of the country, um, you know, the leadership in China are, are, are likely pretty allergic to generating too much inflation domestically. Um, like a lot of the historical periods of unrest obviously correlated and that's happened a lot. And there's been plenty of warning for the past kind of decade or two going all the way back to Arab spring and, and things in terms of the, infl- the risk of inflation, right? To, to to, to countries so i think from that point of view they probably won't over egg and that's probably i mean it might partly explain the, the reluctance on on how how big they've been willing to go this time around right on on, a, on easing and, and a lot of these elements so um yeah like it, i think that that part is, is going to be hard to see but i think the the moving the supply chains out of china you know obviously we saw last you know the latest data right the first ever net negative inward fdi right there's always outward fdi but even the inward fdi numbers are negative now um so yeah so you know that's clearly a pretty structural uh trend um so so, you know those that there's going to be a need to shift those and that presumably leads to like adjustment period and you know clearly won't be as efficient as the current setup so i i suspect it's probably net slightly um exporting inflation structurally Um, But obviously, cyclically speaking, while China's down here is clearly, uh, unless they really generate some kind of big economic recovery, which, again, isn't in the leading indicators, right? It feels more like an acute need to just, um, you know, try and rescue the stock market at this point. Um, So, yeah, I I suspect it's probably slightly inflationary, but it's probably not that big a swing factor either way. It's probably not the mega deflation, uh, you know, people claim it is.
1: In that context, too I guess um, how would you i think this is an interesting uh, opportunity to talk um, you know capital scarcity is our is our biggest you know long term structural driver or signal for for an, for an investment, and we've seen you know China is getting flagged uh, as capital scarce uh, whether it's large cap small cap equities um, but what weight? Then do you put on a capital scarce metric when there is overarching um, you know geopolitical rate right. you know we, we flag that same concept in many Latin American countries, whether it be Chile, argentina um, there, how I guess how would you uh, from just a bigger picture standpoint frame to, to weigh to incorporate capital scarcity into other maybe idiosocratic factors, or how should you overlay then to be more tactical? near-term factors in that regard.
0: So I, I think investing in China today is more of a, you, you know, it's like that F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, right? Like you got to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time, right? A lot of China's problems are a feature, not a bug, right? Like I think at this point, everybody accept, it's a, accepts it's a new political regime, a new reality. Um, but you need to kind of have the idea and then also look at some of the valuations and look at some of the companies operating, say in Hong Kong, and look at the cash flows and and decide, you know what, you know, is there some state of the world where this thing, you know, can can work out well, yes, right. And you can probably size it accordingly. So I I think that if you want to talk about direct China exposure, that's probably the the angle. But I think it's clearly more intuitive to get exposure to China upside without the direct kind of capital return of capital. Kind of risk right that you know it's understandable why western investors are concerned um and this is obviously linked to either latin or malaysia or these various other things we talked about in terms of investing in capital scarce industries in in those countries right or even investing in commodities where you know in a sense like there's always the upside from like china as a co- consumer or china coming acquiring right like china seems to be like exit liquidity a lot for a lot of a lot of like the you know the 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 you know the mines and the assets people are uploading, right? You know they're, they're the bid. So I I do think those are probably like ancillary ways to get exposure to the the China upside, if necessary, while without the kind of direct political risk. And then like your crowding capital cycle valuation, all those things probably make sense, right? I think for direct China exposure, you know that's just I guess it's no different to investing in Yam, right? I really think there's an it's analogous to I just remember like since since when i started my career i remember you know you first start off working on this and you build all the kind of you know two you know all these charts I right, seeing what the outliers are and it was just very consistently russia russia was always always look cheap it was always like wow why is this so cheap What is everyone else and you go to russia and you're like oh there's some really high quality companies right look at the roe and stuff and like they, these guys compound and yeah if you bought it cheap enough you sound it for a while you probably could you did compound a lot right but structurally you know it, it traded at a discount in terms of where it is and i think that's the that's that feels like where we are in china right what you know what's it going to take for us to re-rate where it was before right if it's an if truly is a regime shift in terms of where the, the chinese economy and chinese politics today and and so it's kind of more like longer term structurally right where the equity valuation is probably lower and you know, the obvious answer is like, you know, after they do a, if they do a big devaluation, if they do a big banking recap, then obviously you should feel very comfortable that that truly is the bottom. But before then, it kind of feels like you, it is this like two diverging ideas, right? You almost, this is probably like the whole, you have to kind of decide macro doesn't matter. This one specific, these specific companies I picked out in Hong Kong are so cheap. They're not that exposed. And, you know, you're going to be able to just compound the, you're going to get paid a huge carry because most of these things are trading on ridiculously high free cash flow div yields and you just get paid the carry to wait for these scenarios where you know if some improvement they might you know even without a re-rating you'll get a good return right it feels like that kind of that that would be probably the opportunity and then there's some scenarios in the world where you re-rate higher and does well but you probably have to be careful of your overall direct exposure to China where you can probably find loads of these other examples right even yeah, Indonesia, Malaysia, you know, Brazil, Mexico, right? Like this is the whole multipolar, that's like a- as US China tension ramps up, you know, there's these countries in the middle, if you can find the value, obviously India is quite expensive, right? But like, you know, there's probably a lot of kind of beneficiaries in the middle that can play them off against each other, right? Like the Bra- like like Brazil, like India, like Mexico, although Mexico be obviously mostly in the US field, right? Um so yeah. It just feels yeah. easier to go for those kind of proxy rather than taking on direct risk.
1: Yeah, and I think the F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, the concept of cognitive dissonance, uh, it's so pertinent always, but especially today. And I think you could make the argument, you know, even see aspects of that within the U.S. You know, the the concept of can deficits run forever? But you know, uh, we have you know productivity dynamics. You know, there's go- there's going to be winners and losers. Uh, sector by sector, we're seeing the discrepancies in the labor market, all of those, the extreme moments in markets create um, divergence opportunities, and you have to um, have the cognitive distance to be able to identify, uh, you know, where, who could bet, like, not everything is, nothing is binary, there's always opportunities across the board, and I think that's when, you know, utilizing uh, our, you know, our different tactical, cyclical, structural frameworks really plays, pays off. Um, because then that helps you, you know, potentially mitigate the risk of, you know, you mentioned Russia. Hopefully you don't have to write, you know, a best-selling novel uh, called Red Notice to uh, following the event of an outcome of a country. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good uh, uh, a good way to wrap um, and a good summary yeah. of the current backdrop in, in markets. It um, well, the big picture, you, right? I think. So yeah,
0: yeah. I, think, I think this is a good cadence to get into. So I think in summary... You want fiscal labor hoarding and Fed cuts. And then I think that's a reasonable ingredient for us to get the soft landing by your end. Um, Obviously for now, not a lot has happened in the data, right? So that's why we're on the side of being long inflation, finding where it's underpriced, whether it's commodities or gold or whatever. Um, Productivity, yes, tech, you know, I think clearly AI is revolutionary. We experience it in our daily workflows, right? of what we're doing. But I think that the geopolitical angle ultimately is do we live in a world where efficiency matters most or does security matter most? And if I err on the side of security mattering most and err on the side of fiscal and monetary policy coordination, I suspect those are still pretty powerful forces, right? And obviously we think demographics is inflationary, which, you know, that can be debated. Yeah. And then on China, I think, yeah, cognitive dissonance, right? There's clearly single stock opportunities that you don't need a re-rating for analogous to, you know buying i don't know like yandex or spurbank or whatever join one of those major russia kind of you know russia scare things right so i think th- that's possible but otherwise going for the capital scarce less crowded you know malaysia indonesia latin or any of these other you know, you know obviously they've been investing a lot into thailand in, in some of EV factories and stuff so that just seems much cleaner um as a proxy and getting china upside